Hi, I'm Chris Till and this is the Digital Health, Digital Capitalism podcast. So, uh, today I'm uh, talking to uh, Tamar Sharon, who is uh, an assistant professor at Maastricht uh, University. So, hi Tamar. Hello, hi Chris. Hi, uh, thanks for talking to me um, for being part of this uh, podcast. It's, uh, it's good to see you again. Yeah, you too. Very happy to be here. <laughs> Thanks. So, um, uh, Tama is um, someone who uh, I think yeah, we, we met a couple of years ago originally in Denmark. I think. Yeah, our house. Yeah. Yeah, our yeah, house. yeah, yeah, yeah. At our house, um, at a conference, and um, she's someone who's been working on various areas that I think are relevant to this podcast over the last few years, and who I think is, is doing some really interesting empirical and, and theoretical uh, investigations. Um, and she's been working on, I think, things to do with self-tracking, but more recently to do with the, sort of the moves that digital uh, companies uh, are making into healthcare more broadly. Uh, would, would you say that's yeah. roughly right? Yeah, yeah, that's pretty clear. I mean, I think I started out, well, a few years ago, started getting very interested in self-tracking for health, especially, and how I was kind of taking a pretty much a user's perspective on that, how individuals interact with these tracking devices in light of uh, these kind of dominant discourses around personalized healthcare and increased responsibility for health. And I really wanted to explore how individuals experience this in their everyday. Um, and so I did that for a few years, but I, I've certainly now I've started moving kind of to, uh, uh, I don't know if it's a different, um, uh, level or a different perspective, but that's how this um, this person this personal health data that's being generated on all these devices has become very attractive to health research. So not only for letting individuals become healthier and more responsible for their health, but it's actually very useful for doing research. And because these devices are consumer devices, uh, just about all of them except for some really hacker types who know how to kind of makeshift their own devices. Um, this has allowed kind of really large consumer tech companies to make a move into the health care and health research domain. So that's 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 pretty new. So that's taking a different perspective. So, so yeah, so that's kind of moving moving from the sort of the user sort of up to kind yeah. of research and kind of corporate. Yeah, um, yeah. Side. But the interest is how to connect that, how to yeah. bring all of it together. Yes. Yeah. So uh, could you just say a bit about what, what kind of approach uh, the, the, the slightly earlier stuff in relation to looking at the user side, the user level, uh, what kind of uh, methods have you used to, to look at what they're, uh, at those experiences? Yeah, um, so I'm doing what we call, at least here in the Netherlands, I know it's not called like this everywhere, but um, empirical philosophy and empirical ethics. And this has been developed by uh, people like Anna-Marie Moll, uh, who's, who's pretty well known outside yeah. of the yeah. Netherlands, quite a few philosophers here, yeah. Charles Vieltra, who happens to be the head of my department, so I came to Maastricht University to do some work with him. And the idea there is that um, philosophy isn't only the realm of kind of theory and abstract concepts. It's not just about theoretically discussing these things, but philosophy is done every day by people uh, in practice. So people um, engage with philosophical questions like what is good, what is right, and so on in their everyday uh, practices. Um, 
the way people engage with the world is also a moral and ethical engagement. So the idea there is to kind of try to move from uh, solely theoretical discussions to look at how people kind of practice philosophy or this kind of enacted philosophy and this enacted ethics. That sounds a bit abstract in and of itself, but the idea is basically to move from just philosophy as a theoretical discussion to look at what people do in their everyday lives uh, and what matters to them. And that's a way of, of getting to ethics as well. So yeah. the methods are really quite simply uh, <clears throat> methods borrowed from the social sciences. It's ethnography. The point is to kind of move from these theoretical debates to go and observe uh, what people do, to speak to them about what they do, um, you know, like anthropologists uh, mm. do. Um, but to connect that also to these uh, kind of broader theoretical debates or to try to move them from just descriptive type of work, not that I'm saying that social scientists only do descriptive work, but to do indeed to try to make that step from a kind of descriptive to normative work and, and more conceptual work. Mm. Um, so Anna-Marie Moll, once I heard her say this, and I really like this framing of what this is, is that her idea was um, to look at... Uh, concepts or these kind of abstract concepts with a cap with capital letters something like truth with a big t or friendship with a big f um, go to empirical sites to explore these and that means kind of opening these concepts up to empirical sites where people are practicing these things where they're enacting these these values in their everyday um, and look at what's happening there in order to be able to export that back uh, in a way that's richer, that enriches the concept. So that, that's kind of what I've been trying to do with self-trackers, to look at how they actually experience self-tracking, uh, what matters to them in their self-tracking practices, uh, so that this could enrich in kind of the societal debate around self-tracking. That's really interesting, and, and that really gets at something that I've, thought about and I've, no, I've never managed to kind of compartmentalize in that way um in the way that uh, as i understand it most of that kind of work when it's done in, in in the british context does tend to be more done by i think by social sociologists social scientists mm -hmm. um and i've read uh, the work of people like moll and been interested in in the way that that is done or that's kind of framed in terms of philosophy and i'd never quite yeah. really got my head around maybe what was being what was offered different I, I read it and just thought it just seems like sociology to me oh, yeah um, but actually the way that you describe it in terms of the, that, that normative element perhaps um and that maybe that slightly broader kind of uh connection it is maybe where that difference uh, lies yeah it might be but i guess it's a very nuanced difference and i'm not very big on these labels either no. so there's quite a discussion going around so there are many philosophers in my department who don't like at all this term of empirical philosophy. And they're mm. just saying, well, you're doing sociology and probably doing it badly because the sociologists then say to us, yeah, you're trying to do sociology, but you're really weak on methods because mm. I'm not a big methods person. I haven't been trained as an ethnographer. So you get stuck in this kind of, I, uh, personally, I feel like it's not that important. Mm. You know, if sociologists are doing really good work, and they're managing to draw um, kind of conceptual conclusions from what they're doing and maybe even normative ones, that's wonderful. It's that connection that I'm interested in between this kind of empirical, everyday kind of let's go see what people are doing and not just talk about them and assume that we understand what they're doing. Um, though there's also some assumptions there when you go and observe, you also have to interpret that. Uh, but it's a way of getting closer to things. Um, yeah. 
to make it more uh, robust in a way, ro empirically robust. Yeah. I think it's important. I think that's right. And I think a lot of this is, is just to do with the institutional uh, traditions of different countries, largely that, that sociology in Britain did expand a lot um, sort of in the 1960s yeah. uh, and it's continued to have quite a big, quite a, a big prominence. Um, and that's where that work has kind of got sucked into, whereas a, it's kind of different in, in, in perhaps in the Netherlands and, for instance, in the United States, it often seems to be done in uh, sort of anthropology departments. Um, yeah. Again, and and to me, a lot of the work is is very kind of similar. It's like you say, it's largely. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure you're right. It's kind of yeah. the labels. Um, I agree. <laughs> so, in relation to the the, the stuff you've done on on self tracking. Um, uh, you've mentioned that in terms of taking this kind of practice approach, um, mm -hmm. uh, which uh, uh, connects with what you're talking about, the kind of the, the practical philosophy, I, I imagine, uh, and mm -hmm. practice theory. Um, yeah. And so uh, Anne-Marie Moll would be the main kind of person that you, you draw on, or one of, one of the key people for that? Yeah, because she's also doing this ethnographic work. So, yeah. I mean, there are a lot, this practice turn has become pretty big, right, in many mm -hmm. fields in the past. 20 years or so we've seen it in philosophy i mean it comes from pragmatic pragmatic pragmatist philosophy as well so people like dewey and the american pragmatists they were also had this claim that um our primary engagement with the world in a sense is not a theoretical one we don't sit back and contemplate the world we uh we engage with it and that's through practices and that's where we have to understand things so it's also a philosophical claim but we've seen that in many other um uh, disciplines, this kind of practice turn, this turn to practices in STS as well. Yeah. Anna-Marie Moll actually practices this practice turn in that she, she goes out and does her own ethnography and she yeah. was one of the earlier ones who was doing that from a philosophy background, so I was quite inspired by her. But I think I came to this actually before I knew her work, so I was... Mm. I come from a very interdisciplinary background, I wasn't trained in philosophy. Uh, I did several different um, uh, degrees in different disciplines, but I was interested, first of all, after my PhD, I was reading a lot of ethnographic work of other theorists, um, sociologists of health, mostly, many British ones, and I was interested in kind of bringing their work together and trying to uh, um, um, draw kind of more conceptual conclusions from their work. So I was using them as a kind of population of my research. And I got a lot of criticism on like, what are you doing? Is this just a review work that you're doing? And I, I was trying to show that no, it was more than this. And then I felt like I really have to go out and learn, learn how to do this myself and do a bit of my own ethnography. Uh, and I'm very happy I did. I did that in the self-tracking project where I went kind of have been following people in the quantified self community for a few years now going to their meetings and their meetups and their conferences and talking with a lot of them and watching them. Um, and it's just uh, incredible how much you learn, how rich uh, these practices are in relation to the discourses about them, the more theoretical ones. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and that's what you, you've spoken about as, um, you've characterized self-tracking as a communicative and a narrative practice, uh, mm -hmm. I think in some of your writing, uh, which, um, is really is really fascinating, and I suppose they're the kinds of insights that it's possible that it's uh, possible to get through the kind of approach that you took, that kind of yeah. ethnographic and that kind of practice approach. Because looking at what they're actually doing, could you say yeah. a little bit about about the, the, those kinds of um, characteristics that you've 
identify the kind of narrative or communicative aspects. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of the first thing that jumps out if you start going to these quantified self uh, meetups and conferences is that they're very, um, well, it's a community, right? They call themselves a co community. And this is interesting in and of itself because a lot of the literature on self-tracking and the quantified self in particular, it's changing a bit now, but the earlier literature, um, especially by people like Evgeny Morozov, for example, is very critical of these types of things. Um, they saw that, and Deborah Lupton, at least her earlier work, they, they, they saw this as a highly individualistic practice. It's about self-tracking, it's about gaining insights about yourself that only kind of have to do with yourself, about what bedtime is best for you, what diet makes most sense in light of your particular conditions of your, your particular life. But then you go to these meetings and you see these people sharing these experiences in ways that are <clears throat> often similar to um, support groups, you know? They're getting on stage and disclosing these very uh, difficult experiences in their lives. This, this is work I've done with my co-author, Dolene Zandberg, and, um, that they kind of get there and they talk about, you know, their struggles with losing weight or with mental uh, disease or with all kinds of habits that they can't control. Uh, and they're sharing these experiences, but they do this sharing through in a sense, through the language uh, of numbers often. So it's the sharing of this numbers that kind of creates a connection. It, it turns into this kind of common language that, of course, everybody in a sense can understand. We all can relate to numbers in a sense. So there, there's that kind of bringing together there. But there's also something interesting that happens, um, I think, in many of the cases we've seen is that uh, translating things into numbers makes it sometimes easier to speak about things that are embarrassing or difficult mm. uh, to, to, to share. So um, one of the participants we quoted in, in, in our article with Doreen was um, uh, somebody who was tracking how many times he went to the toilet every day because he felt he was going too often them, or he was I think, also trying to see what effect this had on stress and things like that. And he said to us, you know, I could say I go to the toilet, uh, I have a bladder issue, um, do you, and how does that express itself? Or I could just say I go to the toilet this many times a day. And that X, this many times a day, is something that others could relate to in a way that he felt was easier to speak about than to start, you know, describing the actual practice of going to the toilet. So, so actually, the, the, sort of the stripping away of some of the of the what we would think about as researchers as like rich qualitative data is actually makes easy makes communication yeah. easier rather than more difficult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I and I know that's something that resonates with um, other research I've seen. Um, for example, I have a colleague here in Maastricht who's worked about worked with um, also doing ethnographic observations on caregivers uh, using home monitoring sensors that generate data about older people in their homes. And there too, she also found that sometimes when this uh, data was translated into a number, like how many times you've gone to the toilet or how many times you've opened the fridge, which, is, which relates to eating, uh, could make things often easier to speak about. So I'm not saying that that happens at all times, but that's one of the interesting things that does happen. So that richness, in a sense, gets stripped away, but it's always also then recontextualized and meat is put back onto it. So both things happen, but it happens very interestingly, I think. And again, the, the point is that this, this is a common, this is a way of, of sharing these experiences. 
It becomes something shared. It becomes something communal. It becomes something uh, confessional, almost in a way. It's uh, these people getting up on stage and talking about their experiences through the the, the data that they generate. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think that, that analysis of it that you present does does challenge some of the uh, the assumptions of people, perhaps particularly like Evgeny Morozov, who have this uh, assumption based on some obviously some insights and some evidence of um, mm -hmm. self-tracking as almost purely being an expression of sort of neoliberal, um, yeah. entrepreneurial self kind of uh, attitudes or dispositions. Yeah. Um, and I think what's really fascinating about your work is, is finding that the, these different kind of readings of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, I enjoyed that too. I mean, those are really ni nice findings in a way. Um, and, and as you say, it's not that uh, this kind of neoliberal, entrepreneurial, uh, hyper-individualistic reading of self-tracking is completely wrong. No. There is some of that going on. But there, I felt there was a tendency in the literature, and things are changing, so the literature on self-tracking is like expanding mm. um, very quickly, right? And it's becoming much, much richer, and it's being enriched also by this kind of fine-grained ethnographic work. But a few years ago, that was kind of the mainstream of how how do we understand why are people interested in self-tracking? Oh, it's all about you know uh, self-optimization, gaining self-control, uh, your human capital, and capitalizing on your uh, human capital, that kind of thing. Um, and there is some of that, but what 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 the ethnographic work I've done and also with Doreen has shown that it's really not just about that. This kind of self-optimization take is not at all the sole reason that people track themselves. Uh, they're not necessarily, I mean, they're not these highly narcissistic um, people who are only interested in these individual insights. A lot of what they're doing is about sharing that and also helping others. So getting support, really this idea of a support group, it's quite simple. Huh? It's like, you know, why do people go to Weight Watchers? This, this is helpful, in a sense, to do this, but it's also getting support, and it's giving support, and it's uh, giving some information and gaining it and, and sharing that experience. So it's not a narcissistic practice uh, for many people. Um, and it was important for us to problematize that because, I mean, this kind of let's blame neoliberalism for everything mm. is is bit of an easy way out. It's a lot of people are saying this, but it certainly needs to be problematized. Neoliberalism can be blamed for many things, but not everything and not everything can be put under that umbrella either. So, no, no, I, I think there's been a certain kind of, this is maybe going off the point slightly, but a certain kind of conceptual slippage with, with neoliberalism and through it being kind of applied to everything. Yeah. Um, and, um, I've heard people talk about so, so almost kind of chiding or criticizing themselves because oh I'm being neoliberal because I'm talking about my career or something, you yeah. know, and, and this kind of thing. And it's like that's for me that's not quite what what it's about. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and I think if it gets used, I'm, other people have said this, but if it gets used in too many contexts that where it's stretching it too much, it, it starts to lose uh, yeah. lose the usefulness that it does have. Um, and yeah, I, I, I think it might be a kind of a concept that's starting to be on the wane anyway, and especially with kind of political yeah. changes that are happening, this kind of thing, there's been a lot of talk of it, yeah. of it kind of disappearing. All right, I just wanted to add, so I yeah. completely agree with you that um, it loses its conceptual strength 
Um, but it's also not helpful. If, if what we're trying to do somehow is to understand what's going on, um, and one of the things that was, what was driving me was to understand why these people are, are so like self-tracking so much. Um, also because I was kind of um, uh, cultivated from within that critique. I knew that critique very well, the neoliberal critiques. I, I was interested in, in understanding why people still do this. Is it only that? But if we want to find a way in a sense of um, better regulating or integrating self-tracking into uh, healthcare or find a way of better designing these devices in ways that, that, that are allow people to kind of um, cultivate some values, some of the values I've spoken about were autonomy and solidarity and authenticity in, in, a, in a good way, I want to say, um, with uh, scare quotes, of course, then this kind of neoliberal critique re really isn't helpful because we, we start off, we end, we end off where we started off, which is these are bad, like mm. we don't want this, this is all about entrepreneurial narcissism. So it's, it's just not helpful uh, analytically. I think that's right. And um, people want and require a sub subjective uh, and emotional engagement with most things in their lives, um, yeah. I think. Um, yeah. And that's why it's really important to, to get an understanding of, of what that is. And for, and for most people, that, I think that's got something to do with some kind of human connection. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, people do have emotional, sub subjective relations with themselves as individuals. But I think as human beings, we spend most of our lives in one way thinking about or engaging with what other people are thinking or interested in or how we can come together or, or how we fit or don't with other people. Um, and yeah, I think a lot of those kind of neoliberal critiques don't necessarily get at those aspects, yeah. even if they are getting at something else. I wonder if, because the, the research you did was mostly with people in, who would identify in some fashion as being part of this quantified self group. Uh, yes. Even in the sense that they, I know there are a lot of people in those groups struggle with it being, being called a movement or anything like that or a community. Mm -hmm. and some are not keen on that. Have you identified any kind of significant or, or broad differences between those kinds of groups and sort of more mainstream users of self-tracking in the sense that it has over the last probably four years, five years, become a much more mainstream activity in the sense that most people's mobile phones kind of are tracking them whether they know it or not, or they may have a step counter on their phone. And certainly, yeah. the, I think the sales of things like Fitbits, the consumer track, um, tracking devices has has significantly increased. Um, yeah. it, it, for you, are there broad differences between how they're used in those contexts? Yeah, well, I can't say this based on any research because I haven't done it outside no, sure. of the quantified self um, movement or at least people who self-identify as quantified selfers. So actually, um, this research was carried out under a three-year research grant. And in the proposal, I had written in three case studies of which the quantified self was only one. So the second case study was supposed to be diabetics in the Netherlands, which are more kind of mundane type mm. of self-tracking. It's a chronic condition. They're also very early self-trackers in a sense because they've been mm. diabetics have tracked their yeah. uh, glucose levels since before self-tracking existed as a tech kind of thing. 
Um, and another was online patient groups. Now, I just got so interested in the quantified self that I got stuck there. It's been two years, but I'm not sure if I'm going to do the other groups. But the, my point was all, already that I was aware that this was a very particular group. They're early adopters. They're kind of geeky. They're usually well off. I mean, they're a very heterogeneous group, but there are some characteristics there. And that's problematic because it's not reflective of the general population uh, of people who track today and certainly not of people who will be expected to track in the future. I think this is something that's going to grow in terms of uh, insurance and uh, healthcare systems. So that's problematic and it's often a question I get, like how much can we extrapolate from this very particular group uh, to the rest of society? Um, I don't think this is really about extrapolating. I see it more as what can we learn from the quantified self as early adopters. Well, it was two things. It was what can we learn from them with how they're dealing with these things? So questions like, uh, you know, surveillance is one of the big issues here or, or privacy concerns around in this, the whole debate on these types of technologies. Uh, and there's this tendency to kind of think, well, anybody who does this type of data generation and sharing all this data is like not bothered by surveillance or privacy or, or they, they've either uh, they're resignated, you know, or they're just unaware and kind of not, don't really care. Um, that's not at all what, what I found in the quantified self. These are people who are really, really aware about what's going on, probably more than the general population, and are looking for solutions to deal with that. So the solutions there are also problematic in terms of how it relates to the general population because these people are often very uh, good and um, used to tinkering with technologies. So they can work around some things. They often don't want to use proprietary software and they've got other solutions. That's not something I would expect the general population to take up uh, en masse. And I don't think it's what we should request either. That, that, that's, you know, asking for everybody to become a kind of hacker. That shouldn't be, that shouldn't be our solution. We no. should find solutions and like, <laughs> the problems are with companies that are sharing the data, not with individuals who don't understand what's going on. But we could also say that we do need some more data literacy in the more general population. So I think there's some things to learn from the quantified self because these discussions are taking place within that community. So we can learn from how they are dealing with these issues and try to extrapolate from that. Um, and the other thing was that I was interested again in, in exploring further or in deconstructing this kind of neoliberal narcissistic data fetishist critique. And in order to do that, I had to go to the place upon which the critique was being made. So it was like dealing with the critique where, where it's, uh, where it's being, um, targeted at. So that was the other choice for really sticking to the quantified self for some time. Um, but I have to say that in, as far as general trends go, uh, I'm concerned. I mean, I found a lot of wonderful things happening among self-trackers in the quantified self-community. I don't see that that will necessarily play out in the more general population. I do think that most people who have Fitbits and iPhones with an Apple Health app uh, who know or don't know that it's tracking their steps if they want to or not, I don't think people have the level of engagement that it re that is required in the way that quantified selfers do to deal with, with these questions individually. Uh, but that's even a stronger um, 
uh, appeal to say that these should be societal questions, that we can't leave it to individuals to deal with these things on their own. We need to have these broader discussions around that. Yeah. And I think this is, because you've, you've written about um, seeing self-tracking as a means, a potential means of resistance. Yeah. Or having, or having that potential within it. And so is it in those kinds of practices that you observed amongst those groups, um, if they could be kind of, in some sense, uh, transposed over to the, the, the population at large, um, that you see that? Or what kind of resistance do you see as possible? I think there's several types. So there's that. That's kind of the that's that's kind of um, that's pretty hardcore resistance. Mm. It's really a resistance to an understanding that these that we're living in this kind of surveillance society and what you can do as an individual to resist that. Um, but there are other forms of, of kind of softer resistance that I I saw there and also with Doreen uh, when we co-authored that paper that are going on that I think are more characteristic of types of self-tracking we can see outside of the quantified self-community. And that's, first of all, a kind of um, the attachment, almost the effective attachment that people can have to the data that they generate or the self-tracking practice has to do with um, with uh, kind of deviating or even challenging a norm. So there's an idea here that each person needs to understand for themselves what is actually healthy or good for them. Mm. Now, this kind of appeal to individual uniqueness, it's its also part of the entire discourse on personalization. So we have to be careful there. Yeah, mm. personalized medicine is saying we're moving from this kind of uh, one-size-fits-all type of medicine and care to care and treatments that are targeted to individuals. Mm. So it's part of the discourse of personalization. But in the quantified self, it goes much further. So personalized medicine is actually in practice more about treating subgroups and not individuals. I don't think, or I don't know, I'm not in a place to say this, but it's hard to imagine that medicine will actually get to that situation where every individual characteristic of an individual is taken into account when, when uh, deciding on a treatment. But self-trackers in the quantified self, they, they really are thinking in those terms that there are norms that the medical community has set up. These norms say very little to me. I really need to know myself and I can know myself through generating data uh, in order to understand what I need. And, and this is, an, in a sense, it, it's a kind of soft resistance to medical authority. So truth claims made by the medical community in the quantified self are not taken at face value. So this is like a flip flipping on its head the kind of discourse of discipline, right? That there's healthism going on and everybody's trying to do, to become more healthy by, you know, eating better, sleeping better, whatever. This is saying, no, uh, these healthism as an ism doesn't apply to me. I need to find out what's best for me. And I'm not going to take at face value what a doctor says to me or what public health campaigns say to me. I need to find this out for myself. So it's a very Kantian kind of uh, autonomy there of, of, of dare to know for yourself. Mm. And I think that's a, that's a form of soft resistance. Uh, and it, it's, it's kind of a nice one. Again, I, I don't think we should aim for everybody questioning everything their doctor says. And often patients, chronic patients, people who are actually suffering, really want to trust their doctor. They don't yeah. have time to go about asking these questions. But it's also 
it points to a kind of society where we're not just all disciplined duped and mm. duped by um, these these kind of grand discourses. Uh, so I find that. Yeah, that's really that's really fascinating. Um, and but it's interesting. I think you're almost kind of hinting at there is that there is there's often this assumption within certain strands of kind of critical thought of, uh, influenced by Michel Foucault or Nicholas Rose or Ian Hacking to an extent, where there's this kind of assumption that almost just the very existence of the statistics and the statistical norm is in itself disciplining. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that um, obviously there's no such thing as kind of neutral data, neutral numbers, anything like that. And yeah. as soon as you get kind of uh, placed um, within a sort of a database as a, 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 it's kind of like what um, Gilles Soleurs uh, talks about as the, the individual, you know, you, you, you become this kind of this, this trace, this number or this digital trace or whatever, and you get placed within within the the database or along the um, uh, the, the line of the, of the statistics, and that in itself is kind of disciplining um, mm-hmm. because the norm kind of takes over um, mm-hmm. as uh, or has some kind of power over you. Uh, but that's not something that you observed with those people. They they were. Did you feel that they were creating their own norms? Yes, certainly. Yeah, I think that's really uh common that's mm. really quite common and you see that for health you see that i think one of the um, participants who really struck me um who i wrote about uh also in the article with Doreen, was a woman who was tracking her grief so this wasn't like a typical just you know using an app to track some kind of uh health value she's tracking her grief after her mother died right. and she built this kind of uh log thing where she logged, um, it was like an Excel thing, it was quite low tech, where she logged all these things that reminded her of her mother. They were photos or memories or places. Uh, And she did a little bit of tinkering there. She used a mood app that had these mood categories, but she played around with the categories a little bit. And then she could associate each of these memories with a mood that she would have when the memory was kind Mm. of elicited. And it was a way for her of, of tracking this grief. Uh, her mother had died a sudden death. And when she spoke about this project, it, it had this therapeutic value to it because there was something about kind of focusing on the grief and letting herself uh, be immersed in it um, and allowing these memories that might be fleeting normally to, to take time to play out that was very therapeutic. But she also spoke about it um, in a way she used these terms which were about uh, uh, creating this space in which grief could um, uh, uh, play itself out and protecting that space from the outside world. And this outside world in relation to that space was one where the grief had to be dealt with quite quickly mm-hmm. and you had to get on with things and not spend too much time grieving, not make it too much of a focus of your life. And when she was tracking in this project, she could then like protect the space and she could, she could, she could make her own, you know, space and time of grieving. And I thought that was very beautiful. And I also saw it as a kind of resistance to the, to, to norms of what, what is uh, societal, societally acceptable about grieving. So mm. she did mention that this was, a, she was American in a society where there wasn't enough time to grieve. She felt mm. like she wasn't being enough, given enough time. She had to like get over it already. Um, so that's, that's, 
I, I think that's a really interesting form of resistance. It's not this open out one against surveillance and corporations and governments. It's really about uh, these norms we have and this norm is not right for me. Uh, and might tracking create a space in which I have agency to decide what is better for me, what, what does fit me. Um, I suppose in that context, it's taking the, the data or the statistics away from um, away from the the the, sort of the um, state or medical institutions mm -hmm. which are doing the disciplining, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and actually, the, on that point, that, that's a really kind of beautiful example, actually. And on that point about uh, not being given the time or the space that she wanted, uh, you know, being like she's kind of forced into getting over it quite quickly. That stuff is quite institutionalized if, in like the um, in the DSM. The um, uh, uh, you know that you have to you have two or three months if you're still very sad after that then you're clinically depressed so you you literally there is a time limit you've got two months and then 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 you you've got a mental disorder um, yeah so that, which is very funny, short I, I don't know if you've ever grieved but it's a very <laughs> short period I think this young woman she was doing it for almost a year. Mm. Uh, and she seemed to be doing quite well. I mean, but but mm. it was the fact of like dealing with it so mm. much that was very helpful for her and allowing that to take time. Yeah. And I, I, I suppose this is what you've spoken about as um, some people seeing or using the self-tracking practices uh, as a means to develop new senses is I think how you phrased mm -hmm. it. Um, yeah. And w would that be kind of an example of that kind of? Well, there's something about I think the. Um, I don't know what sense it would be there, but there is this kind of uh, focus on one's everyday um, mm. that creates more awareness of it. So I think for a lot of self-trackers in the quantified self community, um, this is often about getting to uh, know themselves better. So I mean, the motto is self-knowledge through numbers, mm. and that's... There, you can, I mean, that's a wonderful model for any philosopher or sociologist to deal with because there's so much to work on just in that model. But I think a lot, it, it's not about, again, necessarily this self-optimization, self-control. It's about learning to know uh, aspects of yourself that perhaps you hadn't noticed before um, because we don't have trackers in our body that focus on small things like uh, heart rhythm or galvanic skin response or how we respond to grief or our moods at the times. And that these tracking devices help us become aware of that. So a lot of trackers speak about developing senses in quite simple ways, like ones who track their uh, calorie intake for a long time start speaking about they kind of know how many calories is in a plate of food because they're so used to entering this into an app, you know, and finding it out that they start seeing that it's kind of the sixth sense or how much a plate of food weighs for ones who weigh food. Uh, or one tracker we had spoken with was, was making a, a note of every day when it was uh, 8.36 or something in the evening. And he spoke about how he's getting a better sense of when it's 8.36 every evening. So there is this idea that somehow this data becomes then re-embodied. It's kind of uh, uh, um, externalized and then re-internalized as a new sense, a new awareness. And there are even devices like this. So one of the devices I remember seeing, I don't know if it's still around, but it was called the 
hap, the north haptic paw or something like that. So it was basically a compass that you would wear on your belt. And every time you faced north, it would buzz. <laughs> and the idea was that at some point your body would feel where the north was, right? So it would, it would, it would kind of create this new sense that your body could feel. Mm. Um, and that's, I mean, that's kind of funny, but some, I think a lot of self trackers do the tracking really to generate more mindfulness about their everyday. It's, it's, it's a lot of bringing to a level of awareness things that they haven't been aware of before. If it's habits, if it's, you know, how much they're eating, or if it's people like um, Alberto Frigo, who, who was one conceptual artist who I followed for a while, who's tracking all these crazy things. It started with everything he holds in his right hand that he would photograph, and then he started tracking also his dreams and um, the weather, uh, music he would hear in public spaces, and he's an artist, so he would make a collage of all these things. But the idea was kind of to become more engaged in his everyday. So the music that you hear in a public space, you, you, it's quite rare that we stop to think about it because we're busy doing all kinds of things. This tracking uh, exercise made him very aware of that. Um, and that, that, that's also kind of nice. It's a, it's a bit of a romantic take on tracking, but there is this idea that, um, uh, that tracking is not just about creating a mirror of oneself, but it's like a window into oneself. Um, a self that kind of isn't normally known or not known well. I think, and I think that this, uh, and I think that connection you make with mindfulness is really interesting, and especially given that uh, over kind of a roughly similar period of time, mindfulness has uh, really shot up in the kind of public. Um, yeah perception and, 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 and uptake and it's, it's something which um, is spoken about a lot more now than yeah. it was sort of 10 years ago you know it's, yeah. it's been around for a lot longer than that and of course there are mindfulness apps and things yeah. like Headspace yeah. and, uh, and this kind of thing but I think there is a, a connection there but also I think partly in the way that you talk about it there um, fits with kind of a longer tradition of uh, kind of psychoanalysis uh, of, of having this um, this being this ability to sort of objectify um yourself uh, or turn yourself into yourself into something you can reflect on and see mm -hmm. in one fashion or another obviously uh, through psychoanalysis that was through kind of methods of introspection or or, or whatever else um yeah. dream analysis and things like that but whereas with uh, with self-tracking it, it's through turning your some aspect of yourself into something you can look at and reflect on yeah um, yeah uh, and, but of course in both and all of those kinds of contexts being aware that that self has been constructed through the process of representing it, whether that is through the therapeutic encounter or, or through creating some, some stats, um, that's obviously vital. And I think the way that you've described it, the people you, you observed or spoke to would be very aware of that. Yeah, um, but I would say that that's not a majority. No. I would to say that from what I've seen, it's often not um, this idea. I don't know. It's difficult to say. Um, so there's a bit of a difference there with the kind of psychoanalytic self, which which is kind of an essentialist, truthful self that's kind of hidden deep down and can be brought out. Mm. Uh, and again, like it's difficult because quantified selfers, they're not usually not philosophers or trained um, sociologists. And so they 
for academics, they tend to use big words like selfhood very loose, which is telling in and of itself. I find it really fascinating. So sometimes you've got in one sentence this re reference to a kind of this deep essentialist self that's unchanging but needs to be discovered. And in the next breath, you have the same person speaking about this self, which is constantly changing and dynamic and it's constructed and it's built up through the tracking practices and you never you, it's hard to get a bearing there. But mm. again, that in and of itself, it's, it's quite interesting. Uh, I do think that, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I can't say which which kind of self, this kind of dynamic, post-structuralist self, or this essentialist psychoanalytic self would be more prominent there, because it's really back and forth. Uh, I think it would be very interesting to sit and do some work just on the notion of selfhood in the quantified self. Mm -hmm. And many people have mentioned this, uh, but I don't think any real, um, work in depth has been done on this. No. I think no. it's very interesting because I've seen self-trackers speak about, I remember being at one conference and there was a panel with three or four trackers on stage. And I don't remember what the topic of the panel was, but then they were talking about the self of their tracking experiments. And so again, I, I studied a lot of, I was trained in quite some critical thought and post-structuralist theory. So this, these ideas of kind of dynamic selves, you know, I'm used to that, but it's not something you regularly see kind of happening. It's very cool when you see it happening. So these people were up there saying, yeah, uh, myself is an antagonistic self. So I sit and talk to myself about why are you gaining weight? You know, and then this other one is talking about a kind of empathetic self or a mindful self. And then there was this other one. I remember she was an artist. She was speaking about this fragmented self that she was tracking. Uh, and so she was an artist, so she had a special relationship to all of this. But she was tracking, doing mood tracking and other types of, I don't remember which biometric data, and turning these into little calendar cards of days. And this was herself, that it was stacked into something she called the reverse calendar. But then she was selling each of these individually. And this was her fragmented self. Wow. And so, you know, if you're trained in post-structuralist philosophy, <laughs> like, yeah, of course, this is what everybody's <laughs> always been saying about selfhood. Yeah. But here you see it happening. And it's happening also, um, the data isn't necessary there, but it's an enabling factor of this fragmentation mm. of selfhood. So it's lots of interesting stuff happening wow. there. Of yeah. 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 Um, I'd like to just um, to jump slightly, but it's just to talk a bit. Um, I don't want to keep you for for, for too long, but um, talk about some of your more recent work, which which does very much kind of connect with with that as well. Um, and um, where you've been looking more recently about uh, into um, sort of the use of data on a more kind of on. Uh, maybe on a, a higher level or a more kind of aggregate level, perhaps. And I think yeah. for me, what one of the things that's just really interesting is about how those individual experiences, which you, you've spoken about, um, are obviously um, are aggregated together. And I think that we can think about the way in which talk about that kind of communicative aspect of self-tracking, uh, the way in which actually the uh, by turning actions of any kind, whether it's exercise or, or food or mood or anything else, into data, they they kind of become directly communicative in a, in a sense, uh, in the sense that that data then actually can be passed around, uh, but also collected together uh, and aggregated. And and I think it's it's when it gets onto that level that it becomes um, sort of commercially valuable 
um, or, mm-hmm. or, or, or um, desirable at least for um, uh, for companies. Where, um, it, it's the ability to, to get all that data together. And I think that's been one of the tensions with some people within the, the quantified self movement is that they wanted to have ownership of their data from lots of different sources, um, yeah. which has been quite difficult because it's often been tied up in in commercial silos. So Nike owns this bit and Fitbit yeah. owns that bit and Apple owns that bit. And yeah. they don't really want, they're not too keen on being too open about it um, yeah. and let, letting people do what they want with it. Um, but it's then when that data starts to become, starts to become valuable. Um, and so, so you've, you've written quite recently about these companies like Google and Apple moving into healthcare. Um, mm-hmm. And suggested some of the some of the impacts um, that this might have. Could you say a little bit about what you think might might be happening there? Yeah, um, yeah. I so this is a very fast and aggressive development. It's really over the past kind of two years that the big major companies, so not just IBM, which has been interested in healthcare for a long time, uh, and Google verily for quite some years, but really like. Uh, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon to a certain extent, even Facebook are, are like moving into this domain of health research, not just health care yeah. somehow, health research very aggressively. Uh, and I think it's happening so fast that a lot of scientists aren't really aware of this, some, some of whom I've spoken to. Uh, and there's quite a few issues around this. So I've tried just to start like mapping these and I came up with kind of three clusters of what the issues are here. And so there's there's kind of simple ones of sci- scientific issues. Well, I call them simple, but that's because I'm not a scientist, so they interest me less. But um, this, uh, this is about the questions of kind of scientific rigor, like how good is this data to start using in research? And, and it's being used. So if you think of the Apple Research Kit, this is a platform that yeah. Apple developed uh, only a year and a half ago, I think it was mm. 2015, like March or April 2015. And it's this platform that basically allows uh, medical researchers to develop apps as clinical studies. Um, so in collaboration with Apple. And these studies have taken off. There's more than 20 today. And I think there are more than 100,000 people enrolled in these studies. And the idea is that you know, in a traditional clinical study, you've got issues of how many people you can recruit. Recruitment is very slow. It's difficult. And iPhones, well, millions of people have iPhones. So anybody who has an iPhone can join one of these studies. Um, The sensors in the iPhone also allow researchers to access all kinds of data that you can't in a clinical trial because, uh, you know, the iPhone can track how your steps, your physical activity, where you are, your gait, how you're walking. Uh, you can have surveys done on an iPhone. So there's all these like great possibilities for getting at this data that's not the traditional data used in medical research. And this is part of the idea of, you know, the potential of big data in health is that we need to use all this heterogeneous data. So traditional medical data, but environmental data as well, lifestyle data. And it's the linking of all of this data that will generate really interesting insights. So the iPhone is now a tool in doing this. So that's the Apple research kit. But there are questions about, I was saying the first ones are scientific questions about, you know, how, how the quality of this data, um, you know, I could be, 
uh, I could be in one of these studies with an iPhone and then I could lend my iPhone to my brother and nobody's going to know in terms of who's doing the study that it's not the same person. Silly things like that. Mm. But it's a real question, yeah, yeah. Of, you know, if the iPhone is collecting the data, how uh, valid is that? But then there are issues that are, of course, the ones around privacy and informed consent. Um, so we know that lots of companies, you know, it's one thing that Apple might say that it's not going to look at this data. And that's what it says. Apple uses often this kind of middleman, Sage Bio Networks, where the data goes from the phone to Sage Bio Networks. And Sage Bio Networks allows researchers to access this data. That's for some of these studies. So the data that kind of stays on the phone doesn't go to Apple. But Google is also doing these types of uh, enabling of research or studies themselves. Google actually has a couple of its own studies now. Google does not have a good track record in terms of what it's doing with data. So the privacy issues are screaming all over this. Uh, so I'm not even getting into that. But I, I think that what is somehow more worrisome, so even if issues of privacy and uh, scientific rigor and informed consent are dealt with appropriately, and they might someday, we might find a way of doing that. There's still questions which are of um, the political economy register. So do we want companies like uh, Google, again, is the obvious example, to have all of this data? Um, so, you know, recently in the UK, there's been this controversy because Google DeepMind, which is the artificial intelligence offshoot of Google, it's known particularly for beating the world champion at Go. Yeah. It's also uh, it's it's also had a couple of contracts with the NHS, whereby over a million people in three NHS hospitals, their data was actually going to Google to develop an app. So it uses this machine learning process, right, where it needs lots and lots of data to feed into this artificial intelligence to to learn how to read these things. Um, and the, the main issue there was around informed consent. This 1.6 million people consent to their data going to Google DeepMind. Now, that's an important question, but I don't think it's the biggest one. There's this kind of elephant in the room there that's not picked on, and it's do we want Google really to have access to all of this data? What happens when Google becomes the biggest um, database of health data? Uh, now, one could say, well, the interests of these companies is not the same as the NHS. Now, I'm not saying the NHS is all fun and roses and it's only about public interest. That's a very naive way of seeing things. But these are companies that have clear commercial interests. They're not talking about public interest. Well, they are, but mostly rhetorically. Um, and it's not saying that they might not do better science. But so the, there's this kind of clear clash between commercial interests and people volunteering or donating data willingly or maybe even not willingly for purposes of research, which typically are related to the public good or the public interest. So there's a, there's a clash there that needs to be, I think, unpacked in a sense. Now, you could say pharmaceutical companies have always done that. So this these relationships between mm. academia and industry, they're nothing new. Right? Big pharma, that's always the issue. Uh, they're out to make a commercial profit. How do we deal with this? This isn't something new. These companies are different than big pharma, I think, because they have access to data of very different domains. So the idea here is that they're not just in healthcare, right? Google's moving from uh, the internet and advertising to books, 
to transportation, to finances, to healthcare, and it's the linking of all of this data, which is immensely powerful. It's kind of dominating each of these fields. And it's because each of these fields is being uh, datafied, to use uh, Jose van Dijk's term, uh, that companies like Google and Apple are becoming experts in all of these fields. And that, I think, is worrisome. So it's a question of, of, of um, experts, of these kind of new players that might be displacing traditional stakeholders like academic hospitals and universities. Again, not to say that that's where the best research is always done and it's always in the public interest, but there is some kind of oversight. So there, there's going to be new power imbalances, to be sure. If you look at a company like um, 23andMe, which is backed by um, yeah. Google and Facebook, actually, they now have the largest human DNA database in the world, and that's a private database. So they're going to get to decide who gets access to that and if and at what cost. Um, so it's one thing that people are very happy to kind of donate this information. It's genetic information and phenotypic information that they fill out in surveys. And they do this often with a kind of philanthropic idea in mind, or at least some kind of solidarity. Um, but then that's another thing if these databases are privatized and they're not necessarily used in the public interest in general. Um, so those are questions I think that this is really about, again, the political economy of data sharing yeah. rather yeah. than just privacy. I, I, absolutely. And, and those are the really interesting issues and really thorny issues. Uh, and I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things that strikes me is that because, as you say, that they may well be able to do good research and good stuff and that may, may be okay, but once these things are privatised, um, it's possible Google won't be around in 10 years, 20 years. They probably will, but they may not be around in 40 or 50 years. You know, people... Um, Kodak doesn't really exist as a company anymore. Um, yeah. You know, which once they were a huge company, there were yeah. a, a kind of there were huge multinational sort of companies from the early twentieth century that aren't aren't, aren't significant anymore. Um, so even if even if Google were responsible, when that gets asset stripped in fifty years or a hundred years, um, what happens then? You know, yeah. or, or who else has bought it and? and and, yeah. and, and whatever and what kind of relationship have they got but I think for me also there's this issue of that once they've got moved into these um, areas and they do have sort of ethical um, drivers for this and that's kind of fine I suppose but then that kind of starts to reformulate what good healthcare is or what good healthcare research is uh, and actually maybe redefines what kind of an e this ethical relationship is um, and reformulates the uh, the whole kind of the whole scene, and so in in global public health, people have um, for a long time uh, had a problem with the impact that, uh, for instance, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has had, mm -hmm. um, who they, you know they 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 dedicate themselves um, to spending basically all their money on tackling global public health problems, um, AIDS and uh, and HIV and various other things, um, but obviously with their own sort of quite technocratic. Um, approach. So rather, they're, they're always looking for kind of um, technical innovation rather necessarily than just sort of basic sanitation and things like that, because that's what they're yeah. into. But they've, they've, yeah. they've, they've, to a large extent, redefined the field. They've redefined yeah. what kind of research gets funded or what kind yeah. of initiatives get funded because they've just flooded the market with this money. Yeah. 
So, I mean, a similar thing, I can't even be, start to imagine how, what that effect might be, but similar effects might, might happen in, in all kinds of fields um, with, uh, with yeah. the intervention of these kinds of companies. Yeah, I completely agree with you. You put it very well. Yeah, there is something here about this kind of um, philanthropy, in a sense, of mm. these companies as well that needs to be really looked at. And some good people are. Uh, what's the name of that researcher at Goldsmith? Oh, I can't remember. Nothing like a free gift. She wrote this book, and it's oh, about Lind uh, Lindsay McGuire. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was just reading the introduction of her book the yeah. other day. But I think that's part of the, the issue, certainly. So these companies, they're not out to do evil. Uh, and there might, I think we also need to be open that they, some ethical innovation might come from these companies mm -hmm. as well when it comes to things like informed consent and how to mm -hmm. do this. And um, I, I don't think we need to demonize them in any way. I think we need to do actually ethnographic work and go and see what's happening there, um, which is another project I'd like to set up. But the CEOs and the big directors of the top executives of these companies, they often talk like philanthropists. And that I find a bit scary because they have a lot of money and they're getting more and more power. And with that power comes indeed the, the ability to define what research is going to be carried out. Um, so Sergey Brin has a, has a kind of, I think, a, a, a relatively rare form of Parkinson's that runs in his family, oh, okay. which is genetic. And a lot of the research being carried out by 23andMe uh, is on Parkinson's. So that happens to be a disease that a lot of people suffer from. But yeah. you know, that that's just to give us a, an idea of what how things might go in the future. Um, I think that's kind of dangerous. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's what philosophers of science have said forever. Who who gets to uh, who, who, who gets to ask the questions in science decides what science is mm. done. I mean, it's... Who pays the pipe or calls the tune? Uh, <laughs> it's tough, yeah. Kind of yeah. Um, and so companies, they're not just starting to, I mean, they're facilitating research to a certain extent because they're, they have this expertise in, in uh, data collection, if it's through iPhones or social mm. media. They have this expertise in data storage, if it's through cloud. So... Google and Amazon have these clouds now that gen genomic scientists, they're, they're putting their genomic data, which is very big, onto these clouds. The NIH in America has now paid a whole lot of money to Amazon and Google to, to, for these pilot projects to store uh, the genome atlas that they used to have, I guess, in their own servers. Um, so they've got this expertise on data collection. Uh, on data storage, on data analysis, when it comes to machine learning and this kind of artificial intelligence and algorithms. Um, I lost my train of thought. Oh, so they're not just kind of like facilitating this research, they're also starting to enable it. Mm -hmm. So Google now has, has one of its own studies that's supposed to track like 10,000 people through health and transitioning into disease. And it does this in cooperation with universities so this google baseline project is in cooperation with duke and stanford but google is running the show mm. and that, that's pretty clear and you've got also this migration of scientists to these companies top top ones so thomas yeah. Insel, i think last year from from the national institutes of, of medical uh, health moved to google for example because they wow. see a lot of promise in this technology mm. in this uh, kind of data intensive science that's where to do it and, uh, interestingly, I think uh, Google's motto used to be 
Don't Do Evil or something like this. Yeah. Uh, I've not seen that for a long time, though. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't either. I think, I think I read that they're working on a new one. Oh, really? Um, yeah, they're taking time to think of it because it's quite consequential. Hopefully it won't, it won't just be an edit of that one with the, with the, I don't, the, the, the don't taken out. Oh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but uh, back to the quantified self, just for a second, what's mm. interesting there also is that some of the uh, people in the quantified self are also not necessarily at the forefront of this, but they're very interested in what's happening. And people like Gary Wolf, who's mm. the leader of the, the movement or community or whatever, is quite involved in trying to find ways of <clears throat> bringing this data that people are generating, the personal health data, to public health. Mm. also in collaboration with commercial entities. Mm. So he's kind of mediating this. Um, and what some people are trying to do, well, America is very different from Europe because there, my feeling is that a lot of times people think that in a way the government is the bad guy and it's got a monopoly on health data and that's where we need to get it out from. That's when data ownership, all this talk about data ownership comes into view. And if we can align with commercial entities to do this, we're better off. So that's kind of the game in the U.S. a little bit from, from some of the times I've been there. I got the feeling. In Europe, it's very different. We rather align with governments against commercial entities. But what some quantified self people or people related to the community are doing is building these uh, open repositories where quantified selfers can take the data that is open from their tracking devices and put it somewhere and then find ways... So there are questions of governance here of how to allow researchers to access that. And I think those are very interesting uh, initiatives that should be followed. Things like Open Humans is one of them. Yeah. Um, things like that. That's 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 a really interesting new kind of thing. Yeah. I, and, I mean, and there, well, and there is, uh, yeah, there's in a broader sense that like, here we have uh, the Open Data Initiative, uh, which isn't... In, specifically to do with healthcare but more broadly and I suppose mm -hmm. it, does, it, it connects with those kind of um, open data kind of uh, philosophies or, or approaches um, but actually on that kind of issue you, you were just mentioning this is something I spoke uh, uh, for the previous podcast in the series I spoke to uh, Mina Ruckenstein and um, we were kind of talking about this interesting um, way in which people seem to be uh, for certain groups okay, are more suspicious of state intervention into their data than they are of commercial. Yeah. Um, and, and, and we've seen this, uh, I think I mentioned in that previous one, how it seems that people didn't seem to get really concerned about surveillance in a kind of a quite a mainstream way until it was the, the Snowden revelations that the, their data was being shared with the, with the government. Yeah. They kind of knew that Google and Facebook had it, but when they gave yeah. it to the government, then that's a problem. Uh, and again, yeah. I think you're right that there is a, there is a national issue here. And, and I think in Europe in general, we have this tendency towards a, or a certain, for some people, at least in Europe, we more likely to consider the state to be this benign um, yeah. holder of information or, or influence over us uh, than in America but um, in the United States of America they have this um, again re relating to the, 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 this issue of our neoliberalism this kind of state phobia is, is, mm. is how, one of the ways in which Foucault characterised neoliberalism and, and that's very much there I think uh, and yeah. that influence that um, of course the quantified self stuff was birthed in um, in America in California in that mm. uh, and and has been by some people connected to that kind of libertarian type 
um, philosophy, which of course, as you've mentioned, really has some benefits in a lot of ways. That that kind of open, um, uh, sort of autonomous um, yeah. s- uh, development of spaces could be really positive, um, yeah. but does have those other kind of tendencies in it as well. Yeah, yeah, certainly, yes, yeah. I think you're right. Um, I don't think I have to add anything. To no, that. no, no. That's good. Um, but I think um, we, we've been speaking for quite a long time, and I, I don't want to keep you uh, oh, yeah. uh, any longer. But um, it's been it's been great to talk to you, um, and uh, thanks for taking some time out for uh, for me. It's been really Welcome. fascinating, fascinating discussion. Like how much time we've been speaking? I know, no, no. It's it's good. It's it's it's, it's nice to have a chat like this. It's um, yeah. Uh, you don't you don't always kind of take take the time out to to just have a chat with people like yeah. this over interesting stuff. You're usually kind of packed into kind of 15 minutes in a conference or in a meeting yeah. or something like this. Well, sometimes a glass of gin afterwards. Uh, nice. Sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, great to talk to you and I'll, um, um, I'll hopefully speak to you soon. Yeah. Okay. All right. It was great doing this, Chris. Thanks. Thanks. Bye. Well, that was my interview with Tamara Sharon, and um, I don't know if these uh, interviews I'm doing are too long. Uh, I don't know if anyone's still listening to this at all right now, but if anyone is, and do you have any thoughts on whether these should be longer, or if these are about right, then maybe let me know. I mean, I listen to podcasts, some of which are about 15 minutes, some of which are kind of 90 minutes, and... I think they both do different things and I suppose either something's interesting and people want to listen to it or it's not. Um, So I actually kind of did a bit less editing in this one than I have done in others. I think because it seemed to just flow like a conversation and I found it hard to find points where to, 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 to chop or to add a little sting or something like that so I've pretty much left it as it is. Um, also, um, apologies, there's some annoying buzzing noises every now and again, and this was before I bought an external microphone, so the, the buzzing is, is the, the whirring of my laptop being put, picked up by the microphone, uh, it's something you can't really hear until you actually listen back to the recording. I tried to get rid of it a bit but with, an ed- uh, with the editing, but um, it's still kind of there. Anyway. Uh, as I said before, I'll put some links up on the blog to um, things we, we've spoken about in the interview. And if anyone would like to leave me any comments, uh, my Twitter handle is at Chris H. Till. My blog is this is not a sociology dot blog. And you can leave reviews on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, the theme music is Bleeps Galore by Rocco, and the incidental music is Disco Stomp by Jonas78. They're both used on a Creative Commons license. This podcast is written, presented, produced, and edited by me. See you next time. <laughs>